Chapter 5 of Charles Simeon by Henley Mole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The University. It is time to turn from Simeon's parochial labours to the beginnings of his work and influence in the university, through which he moved so powerfully the life of the English church and of Christians far beyond our borders. He took an active part for many years in the administrative duties of his college. He long held one or other of the deanships at King's. There were then three, 1788 to 1790-1792-1798, 1827-1830. He was second bursar from 1798 to 1805, and vice-provost, young as he was, from 1790 to 1792. Both as dean and as vice-provost he strove to do his duty. When he became dean of divinity in 1789, his early friend Thomas Lloyd wrote to him, I congratulate you on your appointment and on the very good disposition of the provost towards you. This you are to consider a new talent of no small importance. Oh, use it faithfully, and remember, you are as much accountable for the improvement of it as for the discharge of your parochial duty. Lay yourself out for usefulness no less in the university than in the town. Your influence in your own college is evidently increasing. Nay, further, the provost is inclined to cooperate with you in reforming the college. Try, then, how far he will proceed with you, yet try judiciously." Give the present state of our college and of the university at large its proper proportion of your attention and your prayers. Henry Venn, in a letter written March 1791, mentions a knight's visit to Yelling from Dear Simeon, now Mr. Vice-Provost. In this office he was called upon at once to use his authority in a painful case of discipline, summarily excluding from residence a fellow, his senior, who had been sent away for scandalous behaviour, and had reappeared during the long vacation, while the provost was absent, as shameless as ever. Dr. Glynn was Simeon's helper in this difficult action, and Provost Cook, answering Simeon's report, wrote that, Yourself and Dr. Glynn will ever have my hearty thanks for your prudent and spirited conduct. While thus active in his college, he had already begun to make himself felt as a teacher and guide among the gownsmen in general. I find no express account of the first steps to this, nor was it likely. In Simeon's case, as in that of many men who have exercised a wide religious influence, the influence was not contrived. It came. No doubt he had longed in his early years to have Trinity Church, that he might there preach the gospel in the university. But the wish was as simple as possible in its scope. It was long before he dreamed of being a leader of religion, and never did he affect that character when leadership was actually laid on him by circumstances. It was certain, however, that when once he became minister of Trinity, the church would be frequented by undergraduates for good or ill. He was a fellow of King's, he had already made a name for powerful preaching at St. Edward's, and he was reported to be at war with his parishioners. Trinity Church was literally locked, as far as possible, against its minister, and the minister was resolutely reading prayers and preaching before a congregation gathered in the aisles. Here was quite enough to draw gownsmen in a crowd at first. And when they had once come, they found a man whose sermons, both by substance and manner, attracted at least their curiosity, and soon either greatly benefited them, as a divine message reached the soul, or by a fearless freedom challenged their contradiction and opposition. I shall speak later in detail of Simeon's theology and of his characteristics as a preacher. 
Here it is enough to say that he possessed some really great gifts both of utterance and action, and that in an age when preaching was too often defaced by either a studied monotony of delivery or great affectation, he avoided both evils. Perfect naturalness and the utmost life and energy marked his manner. His matter was never trivial, and he never for a moment wandered into idle rhetoric. To expound the scripture before him as closely and clearly as he could, and then to bring its message to bear full on the conscience and will of the hearers, was his settled aim from the first, kept in view intelligently and with great pains. And what was his doctrine? In two words, it was Jesus Christ. Everything in Simeon's preaching radiated from Jesus Christ and returned upon him, not that he forced texts away from their surroundings and forgot the literal in the mystical, but he was sure that Christ is the burden of the words of the prophets and the apostles, and he knew that he was everything for Charles Simeon. Mere moral essays in the pulpit were for him impossible, though no man could well hold the standard of virtue and duty higher than he did, and so were merely critical discussions, though he always stimulated his hearers to think. For him Christ was the centre of all subjects for sinful man, and all his hearers were for him sinful men, for whom the gospel was the one remedy, and Christ was the gospel, and personal faith in him, a living person, was the gospel secret. To Christ all men were to be called for pardon and holiness and heaven, and those who came at that call belonged thenceforth to Christ, his property bound to live and die to their Lord. Simeon himself thus describes the three great aims of all his preaching to humble the sinner, to exalt the Saviour, to promote holiness. Such was the heart and soul of his message. Whatever else he taught, all was gathered round these two foci, the sin of man and the glory of the Redeemer. No one, I say it confidently, ever preached a soberer gospel from that great primeval text. No one was ever more free than Simeon's writings show him to have been from unpractical rhapsodies, from fanciful appendages to his main message. He was a true man himself, and he was deeply in earnest that others should be true. Nor was he forgetful of the actual conditions of human life. The plain duties of the hour and day, however secular on their surface, were sacred things in his eyes. Social intercourse, physical recreation, intellectual labour and delight were never in his teaching laid under the censure of a mistaken asceticism. The courtesies of life were always honoured in his own practice. The friends of his later years admired in him a fine example of the old politeness. The claims of the church and of the state on the Christian's loyalty and service were his frequent theme when he came to apply truth to life, and so were the claims of the university and the college. His whole influence over his undergraduate followers went persistently in the direction of their doing first the duties which they came to Cambridge to do. But then everything was viewed no longer after the flesh, but always in relation to the sin of man and to the royal rights of Christ. The preacher's sober reasoning and living eloquence all meant that man must come out of himself to the Redeemer and surrender to him, giving over into his hands without reserve the soul, the life, the day. This was made unmistakably clear, whatever might be the collision with common notions of religion and a popular standard of morals. In his fearless delivery of an uncompromising spiritual message, I read almost the whole account of Simeon's early experiences of persecution and reproach in his university. No doubt there were other minor causes. The circumstances of his appointment to Trinity Church not only alienated many of his parishioners, but were sure to prompt them, for they were human, to speak evil of him to the students who came to listen. 
From the very first and for many years after, he was personally slandered as a bad man who made a high profession of goodness, a terrible dagger thrust at any time, but never more so than when, as then, the outward practice of religion has fallen into general neglect. But the evidence shows that in Simeon's case, if ever in any man's, the great burden to be borne was the offence of the cross. He preached a message old as the apostles and their master, but long forgotten in those days in the average life of the university. Its relative novelty gave point to its soul-searching demands, and the human heart rebelled. Certainly little advantage in the way of support from the leaders of the university was with Simeon at first. A few men of influence were in essential agreement with him, particularly Isaac Milner of Queens and William Farish of Magdalen. Milner, senior wrangler of 1774, Incomparabilis was added to his name in the list, was chosen president of Queens in 1788 and long exercised a strong, if sometimes rough, personal authority in university life. Farish, the senior wrangler in 1778, gentlest of men but having a noble courage of convictions, was an able scientific student and became Jacksonian professor in 1813. Almost from the first he was Simeon's firm and helpful friend, and with him may be reckoned Atkinson and Colthurst, fellow of Sydney. But they were almost alone of their order for some time. And Milner, with a totally different character from Simeon's, sent to college by his elder brother Joseph from the loom at Leeds, shrewd and rugged, a keen observer, at first stood in doubt of the new Etonian preacher and cared to watch rather than support. In time, however, he entirely trusted him and was his resolute helper. I find him in 1794 preaching to a serious congregation at Simeon's church in the morning and hearing him preach a faithful discourse in the evening. As a rule, the heads of houses and other chief men looked unfavorably upon Simeon and made their dislike and suspicions felt in many ways very trying to him and those who attached themselves to him. In one college, for instance, a regular Greek Testament lecture was begun on Sunday nights with the well-understood purpose of preventing attendance at Simeon's evening service. He met this difficulty in the wisest way when his undergraduate friends told him of it. He advised them to set a careful example of regular attendance and attention, letting it be seen that Methodism did not mean neglect of duty. After a few years, the lecture was given up on the protest of one of the fellows of the college. Long after the first days of trial, the gownsmen who worshipped at Simeon's church ran some academical risks, so strong was the suspicion against his principles. In one case, related to me by the man most concerned, a dignitary of the church in his later days, a great injustice was done, an act which would be utterly impossible now, and which may seem almost incredible as it was. A candidate for a college prize found himself at the foot of the list, but learned afterwards, by the examiner's inadvertence, that his marks had actually put him at the head. The marks were cancelled by notorious and obstinate Simeonism. This, however, was an instance by itself. The general opposition was more honest in its methods. In all this, we have little more than particular instances of the trials to which almost everywhere, for many years, the best of the clergy called evangelicals, or to use the older term Methodists, were called to submit. Many a curious tradition lives, with no bitterness in its life, among the descendants of those men, the late Reverend Henry Venn, for thirty years secretary of the Church Missionary Society, the son of Simeon's friend John Venn, records what follows from his own experience. In the present day it will hardly be credited, 
but one of these early recollections of about 1808 may serve as a specimen. A near relative of the Bishop of London, after being a guest at Fulham Palace, was to visit Mr. John Venn at Clapham. We, the two sons, were ourselves sent to wait at the Bull's Head, a mere public house, 300 yards from the rectory at Clapham, and to bring the visitor to the rectory. The truth being that the Bishop of London could not allow his carriage to be seen to draw up at Mr. Venn's rectory, though it might be seen to set down a lady at a small public house. And John Venn, when about to enter Cambridge in 1779, had sought admittance in vain at Trinity College. The objection to him was not that he was either dissolute or ignorant, but that he was the son of Henry Venn of Yelling. He went to Sydney, Sussex instead. It may be interesting in this connection to quote an unpublished letter of Henry Martin's. It was written to his friend R. Boyce, Esquire, Bennett College, Cambridge, three years after Martin's brilliant Cambridge successes, and one year before he sailed for India. Truro August 8, 1804. Dear Boyce, I wrote to you from Plymouth Dock, Devonport. The day after I wrote to you, I preached twice at Dock, and the next day arrived home. The following Sunday it was not permitted me to occupy the pulpit of my native town, but in a neighbouring church I was allowed to testify the gospel of the grace of God. But that one sermon was enough. The clergy seemed to have united to exclude me from their churches, so that I must now be contented with my brother-in-law's two little churches about five miles from Truro. The objection is that Mr. Martin is a Calvinist, preaches in the dissenting way, etc. My old schoolmaster, who has always hitherto been proud of his pupil, has offered his services for any time to a curate near this place, rather than, as he said, he should apply to me for assistance. The desire of hearing the truth and of communion with the established church is very great in the dissenting inhabitants of this town and the surrounding parishes. It is interesting to remember that always now, as the anniversary of Martin's death recurs, a sermon is preached in the Cathedral of Truro, in which the great work of missions is set forth and his illustrious share in it commemorated. But I return to Cambridge and to Simeon's early preachings in Trinity Church as they reached university men, and to the animosity they roused. From his own retrospect, the memoir already quoted, I take the following passages. The first refers to a time when he had at last succeeded in introducing an evening service. At first, and indeed for several years, the keeping of order in my church was attended with considerable difficulty. The novelty of an evening service in a parish church in Cambridge attracted some attention. In the college chapels it was no novelty, but in a parish church it conveyed at once the impression that it must be established for the advancement of true religion, or what the world would call Methodism. Hence it is not to be wondered at that it should be regarded with jealousy by some and with contempt by others, or that young gownsmen, who even in their own chapels show little more reverence for God than they would in a playhouse, should often enter in to disturb our worship. I appointed persons to stand with wands in all the aisles, and as the chief disturbance was generally made when the congregation was leaving the church, I always went down from my pulpit the moment the service was finished, and stood at the great north door ready to apprehend any gownsman who should insult those who had been at church. I endeavoured always to act with mildness, but yet with firmness, and through the goodness of God was enabled to keep in awe every opposer. I requested those who withstood my authority not to compel me to demand their names, because— if once constrained to do that, I must proceed to further measures. 
this kindness usually prevailed. Where it did not, I required the person to call upon me the next morning, nor did ever one single instance occur of a person daring to refuse my mandate. On several occasions stones were thrown in at the windows, and the offenders escaped, but in one instance a young man, the very minute after he had broken a window, came in. I charged the act upon him, upon which, conceiving himself detected, he acknowledged the truth of the allegation. About this time the disturbances had risen to such a height that it was necessary I should make an example. I therefore laid the matter before the vice-chancellor, who, far beyond my most sanguine expectations, acknowledged the enormity of the offence and offered to proceed with the culprit in any way I should require. I did not wish to hurt the young man, but it was indispensably necessary that I should act in a way that should intimidate all the men in the university. Unless they be reduced to order, I must entirely lay aside my lectures, both on Sunday and Thursday evenings. But, as such a sacrifice would be most injurious to the cause of God in the whole town, I determined either, as we say, to kill or cure. I required that the offender should read, in the midst of the congregation, a public acknowledgement written by myself, and this the young man did on the following Sunday evening, begging pardon of the congregation for having disturbed them, and thanking me for my lenity in not having proceeded against him with the rigour which his offence deserved. The church was very full of gownsmen, and the young man, in the most conspicuous place in the church, read the acknowledgment immediately after the prayers, and because he, as might have been expected, did not read it so that all the congregation might distinctly hear it, I ordered him to deliver me the paper, and then myself read it in the most audible manner before them all. Footnote. The paper, which was thus read, November 16, 1794, still exists. It begins, I, blank, of blank college, sensible of the great offence I have committed in disturbing this congregation on Thursday last, do, by the express order of the vice-chancellor, thus publicly beg pardon of the minister and congregation, etc. Simeon's introductory comments are also preserved, carefully written out. In the course of them, he says, We have seen persons coming into this place in a state of intoxication, we have seen them walking about the aisles, we have seen them insulting persons both in and after divine service. In short, the devotions of the congregation have been disturbed by every species of misconduct. I have been averse to make an example, nor is it without the greatest reluctance that I now call forth a young man of liberal education to make a public acknowledgement. End footnote. During this time the utmost curiosity prevailed, all standing up upon the forms and seats, but there was at the same time an awe upon all, and I then went up into the pulpit and preached from the words, Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap, etc. My sermon was heard with the deepest attention, and for a long time my enemies were all subdued before me. I have sometimes doubted whether I was not guilty of undue severity in reading the paper a second time myself, but when I consider the extremity to which I was reduced, I am disposed to think that I did right. There was one particular instance in which a degree of severity on my part was attended with the happiest effects. Two young men, now blessed servants of the Most High God, came into my church in a most disorderly way, and as usual I fixed my eyes upon them with sternness. One of them was abashed, but the other the only one that ever was daring enough to withstand my eye, looked at me again with undaunted, not to say with impious confidence, refusing to be ashamed. 
I sent for him the next morning, and represented to him the extreme impiety of his conduct, contrasting it with that of those who were less hardened, and warning him who it was that he thus daringly defied. He that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. And I enjoined him never to come into that church again, unless he came in a very different spirit. To my surprise, I saw him there again the following Sunday, but with a more modest countenance, and from that time he continued to come till it pleased God to open his eyes and to lead him into the full knowledge of the gospel of Christ, and in a year or two afterwards he became a preacher of that faith which once he had despised. The man thus changed was for many years till his death in 1833 one of Simeon's inmost circle of friends. It was John Sargent, the biographer of Henry Martin. He was to have written the memoir of Simeon himself had he survived him. I had desired my most beloved friend Mr. Sargent, he writes to Mr. Carus, to undertake the work, if it must be undertaken. But Sargent died just as he was about to visit Simeon and receive the materials from his hands. He left a memory singularly dear and beautiful behind him. In that book of much curious and often sorrowful interest to readers of academic history, Gunning's Reminiscences, the author, a most impartial observer, who well remembered Simeon's early days, writes about these troubles. For many years, I speak from my own personal experience, Trinity Church and the streets leading to it were the scenes of the most disgraceful tumults. In vain did Simeon, with the assistance of persons furnished with white wands, exert himself to preserve order in the church. In vain did Professor Farish, who, as moderator, was well known and popular with the undergraduates for some years before and after he was proctor, station himself at the outside door to prevent improper conduct to the persons leaving the church, and, though one undergraduate, who had been apprehended by Simeon, was compelled to read a public apology in the church, the disturbances still continued." Gunning's account and Simeon's own supplement each other. Comparatively, the strong measures taken did make a great change for the better, but the better was still very far from what it should be. And Gunning's description of the general wild license of word and behaviour among the undergraduates of those days makes it less remarkable that, in the particular case of Trinity Church, they should have acted as they did. On one occasion, in that early time, a party of these men determined to assault Simeon personally as he left the church after service. They assembled at the chief entrance, the north door in Market Street, in such numbers that it would have been difficult to disperse them before some cruel violence had been inflicted, and Simeon had always left the church by the north door on his way back to King's. But that Sunday, without thinking about it, and certainly without the least suspicion of the plot, he went out by the south door and returned to college by the street called Petty Curie. Quite as hard to bear as open insults and attempts at outrage were the coldness and half-expressed contempt of men of his own standing. Indeed, this must have been to him the heavier burden of the two. The disorderly gownsman challenged and called out his personal courage, as well as his patience. The slow trials of social estrangement, surely one of the severest tests of principle to a man of refinement and sensibility, could not be met by action. I remember the time that I was quite surprised that a fellow of my own college ventured to walk with me for a quarter of an hour on the grass plot before Clare Hall, and for many years after I began my ministry I was, as a man wondered at, by reason of the paucity of those who showed any regard for true religion. He records one incident of the inner history of those trying years. When I was an object of much contempt and derision at the university, I strolled forth one day, buffeted and afflicted, with my little testament in my hand. 
I prayed earnestly to my God that he would comfort me with some cordial from his word, and that on opening the book I might find some text which should sustain me. It was not for direction I was looking, for I am no friend to such superstitions as the Sortes Virgilianoe, but only for support. The first text which caught my eye was this, They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. You know Simon is the same name as Simeon. What a word of instruction was here, what a blessed hint for my encouragement, to have the cross laid upon me, that I might bear it after Jesus, what a privilege. It was enough. Now I could leap and sing for joy, as one whom Jesus was honouring with a participation of his sufferings. That same little Greek testament is now in my charge. It is a neat duodecimo printed at the Cambridge University Press in 1700. Inserted in it is a memorandum in the hand of Canon Carus, which gives another account of the same incident from Simeon's own lips, not less interesting because of one variation in detail. It makes the finding of the text take place in his rooms, and speaks of those rooms as in the old king's buildings, whereas, as Canon Carus agrees with me, Simeon must have been already lodged in the fellow's building, on the ground floor, for he left his first rooms as soon as he became a fellow. But I give the account just as it stands." At an early period of his ministry, and when he was suffering severe opposition, he was in much doubt whether it was his duty to remain in Cambridge. He opened his little Greek testament, as he thought and intended, in his epistles, and finding the book upside down, he discovered he was in the Gospels, and his finger on Luke twenty-three twenty-six. they laid hold on one Simon, Simeon, and on him they laid the cross, etc., then said mr simeon lay it on me lord and i will bear it for thy sake to the end of my life and henceforth i bound persecution as a wreath of glory round my brow the book bears the inscription charles simeon king's college cambridge and in a much later hand to his dearest friend rev john sargent january seventeen eighteen thirty as the preacher suffered reproach so of course did his disciples those who worshipped at trinity church says sergeant speaking of seventeen ninety eight were supposed to have left common sense discretion sobriety attachment to the established church and love for the liturgy and almost whatever else is true and of good report in the vestibule a simeonite was a sobriquet which for many cambridge generations not merely denoted but satirized a man's religious opinions in an old gradus ad cantabrigiam of 1803 i find the word thus explained a disciple and follower of the reverend and pious charles simeon m a fellow of king's college inventor of skeletons of sermons etc 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 thirty years ago within my own recollection the abbreviation sim still survived the first syllable of the word pious has now succeeded in its place End of chapter five